This is an AMI podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm Megan Gilmer, and I am so glad to spend this time with you. Today, we get to share a conversation with one of my favorite disability writers, Ben Matlin. Ben is a journalist and a writer based in Los Angeles, and he has been writing about his life with disability, about disability policy, and just like what it looks like to live a good life with a disability for uh, years. His latest book came out last year. It's called Disability Pride, and he looks at what the Americans with Disabilities Act has led to in terms of a disability culture in the United States. Ben and I talk about what disability culture means, uh, what it means to be part of that, what it means to not be part of that, just all these things. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Now, longtime listeners will know that I typically say that every guest is my favorite guest, and I'm super excited to have them on. But I am truly very excited to have you on because we spoke in that crazy pre-COVID time that feels like a lifetime ago when I was filling in on the AMI show The Pulse and you had just come out with your book In Sickness and In Health Mm. and I loved it. I loved the interview. I went out and read the book. I loved the book and part of me always wanted to find an excuse to have you on this show. So I'm glad that we have made this work. Cool. Super. One of the main reasons we're on is to talk about your latest book that came out uh, last year. But for people who don't know who Ben Matlin is, who are you? What? How, how would you introduce yourself? Who am I? Well, I was born 60 years ago with spinal muscular atrophy, which is a muscle weakness. So I've never walked. I've always used a wheelchair. I mean, you know, since the baby carriage. I am married. I have two daughters in their 20s, and I'm a a writer, mostly for financial magazines. But I also, on the side, I I write essays and uh, the occasional book. The the occasional book that ends up grabbing a whole bunch of endorsements from across the publishing world and all that stuff. We try. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you, you've mentioned this in some of your bios that you got a full-time job in 2022. Is that correct? I just, yeah, about uh, seven, eight months ago. First okay, time. So, so what, what, what was it? What is it? Well, I, I'm a senior writer for a financial magazine and website called Financial Advisor. I had been freelancing for them for, oh, 10, 12 years. And they were looking for a, a full-time staffer, and I said, hey, what about me? Now, they're based in New Jersey, and I'm in Los Angeles, but, you know, it's one of the benefits of the COVID era, remote workers and all that stuff. So that's been actually great for me and you know, people like me. I hope it continues because, like for my book, I was able to do a virtual book tour, mm-hmm. which had not been possible before. Right. Well, as a freelance journalist, it gives me much hope that you finally landed a full-time gig. Very well-deserved. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It's a strange thing. After so many years of freelancing, I had mixed feelings about it. But the thing is, they, they're, it's a good arrangement because I, I have a 
a fair degree of freedom, you know, as long as I keep producing stuff, you know, I'm on my own schedule to a large extent. It is nice to have a steady place, a steady audience to write for, because I just, I just want to write, you know? The worst thing about freelancing for me was having to drum up business all the time. I don't have to do that anymore. So that's been great. Yeah, I'm sure it must be. I was really happy, happy for you to see that. As you mentioned, you have a part-time gig writing these very thoughtful books about disability. And your latest one is Disability Pride. It's the third one, I believe. And so first, like, what inspired this book? Well, about five years ago, I, I began noticing something I never thought I would see. Fashion models. In fact, there was a, a billboard in Times Square in New York, where I'm originally from, with a model named Julian Mercado, who has a disability similar to mine. And there were other examples of, of Aerie, the lingerie brand, the whole catalog of models with oh, colostomy pouches and prosthetic limbs and a variety of disabilities and chronic health conditions. And I thought, wow, something has changed, that, that people with highly visible disabilities are, you know, not just getting work, but are being put out there very publicly as, you know, models, as sort of fashion fantasies, you know. And, and, and I thought, this is something I think my generation never imagined when we talked about disability rights. And I thought, something has changed. Is it this younger generation that, that came of age after the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which gave uh, us a, and not just our civil rights, but I think the, a sense of entitlement? Or was it the industry, the gatekeepers of media that said, there's a market out there? Yeah, that was quite a, a change. So I started to look into what had happened from, well, let me back up. Uh, you know, the ADA passed in 1990, and not long afterward, my wife and I started having children, and I got involved in, you know, the nest, the home scene, and I kind of moved away from the disability community and the disability activism that I had known. So, you know, 30 years later, I wanted to kind of connect up, connect the dots, and understand what's been happening since the ADA, since I lost touch. What is this community all about? How did we get here? And then also, what is left for us to do? I mean, just because there are disabled fashion models, a few, and, you know, a disabled actor and singer wins the Tony Award on Broadway for uh, Oklahoma, stuff like that, uh, you know, there's still a lot of issues facing disabled folks. I really wanted to reacquaint myself with the community as it is today, and that's why I started this book, and I've learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping to dive into a little bit more about, like, what you've learned. And I know one of the things that you've mentioned in the book and in uh, some of the excerpts from it is the whole idea of disability culture. So how would you define that? Well, it means different things to different people. You know, if we had music, 
or cuisine, that would be helpful. But uh, disabled folks and, and people with chronic illnesses, I think you share a set of experiences of, of feeling different. You know, the idea that there is one standard, one way you're supposed to be, you know, that, that is a problem for a lot of us that we have to uh, cope with. One of the things I kept coming up against as I talked to people, I interviewed a lot of disabled folks, mostly those under 40, 45 years old, and when I couldn't talk to people personally, I, you know, looked at other interviews they've done and blog posts and things. What I kept hearing about was that people had kind of come to a point of learning how to, uh, I want to say this carefully, uh, a lot of disabled people go through a stage of feeling uncomfortable, insecure, maybe I'm the only one in the world like me, and when they come to the community and they get a kind of a, a heightened awareness of these shared experiences of this disability culture, it helps foster feelings of pride. I'm not the only one like me. There's something wrong with me, and I'm part of a big, diverse, active community. That's why I called the book Disability Pride. It means different things to different people, but that journey toward feeling proud as a disabled person, that's something I think we all have in common. And it's not just a done deal, you know, for many of us, it's a sort of a never-ending process of, of learning to feel okay with ourselves as we are. I just kind of want to follow up on that idea a bit. Like, for you personally, um, like, I would see you as somebody who's been very open about your experiences with your disability and how it's impacted your life, but then also using it as a way to look at how other people also experience disability. So, for example, like, the second book that we talked about, Sickness and Health, is all about disability and marriage, right? And you're part of that, but so are a whole bunch of other couples. So I would always see like oh yeah ben has always been super comfortable with his disability but for you like when do you remember when you first felt a sense of disability pride you know early on i i had an alter ego i mean i was doing financial journalism but i also wrote and published essays on disability issues and i was scared to death that one would find out about the other. Well, I mean, that the financial journalism people would find out that I had a disability. I was freelancing, you know, because I applied for jobs. Nobody would hire me, but I got hired to freelance. And like my writing, they just didn't want me around in the office every day, I guess. So I assumed that if I got outed as a cripple, it would uh, hurt my professional standing. I wrestled with that for many years. Uh, <laughs> but, oh my, probably 20 years ago, I had to interview an investment banking guy here in Los Angeles in person. And I, I got brave. I put on my jacket and tie. I had my attendant with me. I brought a little tape recorder. 
<laughs> For those of you who don't know, tape recorders were devices for recording sound before cell phones could do that. Anyway, uh, and I had my attendant kind of waiting in the waiting room in case I needed help. I got up in the office, and the guy was a nice guy, sat with me, took my tape recorder, and he started, his arms started shaking. I don't know if he had early Parkinson's or what it was, but he had a disability too. And I thought, wow, you know, we're everywhere. And he was totally cool with, you know, my disability and, and helping with the tape recorder. And I thought, you know, what am I worried about? Then later on, I went to an abilities expo and I just saw so many different types of disabled people. And, you know, some of them were, were pretty hot, you know? And I thought, there's no embarrassment. There's no reason to be ashamed. We can be attractive, we can be sexual, we can be professional. So that, that was, uh, those kinds of things I think had an impact on, on me. But then you kind of fast forward more recently as other social justice movements have made progress, you realize, you know, <laughs> pretty much everybody's got something. You know, whether you're a person of color, or you're queer, or you're or whatever it is, people are, are, are coming out, and, and pride is, is everywhere. And I just thought, you know, it's okay. It's okay to be me. I don't have to keep it a secret anymore. To me, that, that's a huge change. You know, I mean, I, the younger generation, it seems to me, doesn't, doesn't care, doesn't expect what my generation, I guess, expected in terms of, you know, what, what's acceptable, normal. Am I making any sense? Yeah, or? yeah, no, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because um, as a freelancer, I've sometimes also felt like I have the alter ego. I think I have a few of them, but one of them is the legally blind Megan alter ego. And in the past few years, having like people will reach out every once in a while and be like, oh, like we actually want you to write about your disability. Like we want to commission you for this. Or like I'm finishing up a master's degree in journalism right now. And I've given two talks in the last week about disability and journalism. And the story I always tell is about how I never wanted to write about it. Um, and even and even though I knew that there were disability policy problems, there were huge systemic problems that needed to be addressed. I was really hesitant to do it. And now I do like quite regularly but the beginning I was in and but like students I've TA'd for or whatever they're just like oh yeah these are my disabilities here we go I'm like okay uh it's been really fascinating yeah I I, I found in writing this book and there was one report that one out of four college students identifies as disabled and that may be a learning disability or something else but the, you know as the understanding has expanded it's not shameful anymore or it shouldn't be as we're talking you're giving me an idea for a personal essay that i might try to pitch in the next few weeks oh, so thank good. you again i'm just going to call <laughs> you every time i need writing inspiration oh good good <laughs> here we go but one of the things that your generation did do has to do in, in america with the americans with disabilities act 88 so I was just wondering if you can take us back to what was life like for you before the ADA. This is where you begin this book. Like this whole book is exists because there was there's a before ADA and after ADA time. Yeah, yeah. I was born at the end of 1962. Kids like me were not even in school for the most part. If they were, they were you know not very good schools. My parents knew that. I guess they 
insisted that I be integrated in regular schools before that was required. That was required here before the ADA it was uh, 1975, I believe. It was the uh, Education of All Handicapped Children Act renewed as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Anyway, and, you know, there were no rights, as I like to say. It was legal to discriminate against people like me. I know my parents had to work hard to, to find school, regular schools that would take me. You had to kind of ask and apologize and all that stuff. And even so, the schools I went to were not very accessible. You know, we managed, we worked around steps and things like that. I sure did not ask for any accommodations when taking tests and things, college entrance exams. I just, you know, I faked it, I guess. I just tried to not ask for help, not draw attention to myself. Maybe that was just me, but I think that was not so, not so uncommon. As I mentioned in the book, I think the mentality then kind of came from our President Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. He was still around, you know, for my parents anyway. He had polio, had had polio, and pretended he had recovered fully. It was a bit of a deception. He could not walk unassisted, but he pretended he could. And that was the thing, you know, you minimize your disability. You don't certainly don't talk about it or complain about it. And you, you try to pretend you're just like anybody else. And so I, I grew up with that mentality. I could not believe when the ADA passed. Because what it said to me was, all those thoughts you've had about being treated unfairly, you're right. And you're not the only one. That was very validating emotionally. The law has lots of problems and sure didn't solve everything, but uh, it meant a lot. And you go to great length, actually, in the book to describe some of those problems. And you talk about the different court cases and even trying to like keep a tally of how many times did disabled Americans win in the court versus the times that they didn't. So what are your feelings about the ADA now, like three decades later, even when there's still some significant gaps? Well, uh, we, we certainly wouldn't want to do without it. And there are attempts principally by businesses that want to kind of roll it back and limit the responsibilities on businesses to be fully accessible. But it also isn't enough. About well, probably 15 years ago, maybe more, now, uh, a group of uh, mostly disabled people of color and uh, queer disabled people came together and started talking about a, a second wave beyond the ADA to, to what they called it the disability justice, which is a, a, a good term. It's been kind of, a lot of people use it now, not really understanding what it meant originally, but there are things that cannot be legislated. It's not just attitudes and prejudice. It's, you know, they pointed out things like, you know, a lot of uh, victims of police violence are disabled people. People who can't hear or process and respond to commands to freeze. 
you know, put your hands up. People just can't do that, and they end up shot or incarcerated. There's a lot of injustice facing disabled people that the ADA just does not address. There are really no laws can address. And one of the persistent problems is the high unemployment rate for disabled people, which the ADA was supposed to address. Why that persists, it's hard to say. In my experience, you know, one of the things people talk about when I, you know, when I apply for a job, when and how do I mention my disability? Well, back in the day, when I was applying for jobs, I did not mention it till the very end. Before an interview, I would say, oh, by the way, I use a wheelchair. Will there be any obstacles to attending the interview? And people, oh, no, 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 no obstacles. And I would show up and <laughs> their jaws would drop. <laughs> I would be asked questions like, you know, well, how are you going to make photocopies if you can't work the machine? How are you going to interact with the computer if you can't use a keyboard? So I, I would get interviews, but not a job. I felt like after the ADA, it was supposed to be okay to talk about access accommodations. But I think people still, employers still, do not want to have those conversations. So in that sense, it didn't work. In fact, people became afraid of being sued, I think. So they wouldn't even consider looking at a disabled employee like me for fear that I would sue them. At least that was my impression. I don't know. Anyway, it's a persistent problem that the laws have been unable to fix. And I know I've definitely been in similar situations with jobs. Um, I think a lot of our listeners have. I, I'm speaking to you from Ottawa, uh, so I'm in Canada, and we're like we just got our first federal accessibility legislation in 2019, and yeah, yeah, it was a big moment. Um, and then as we speak, the Senate, so our our upper chamber, is considering legislation that could enable the creation of a federal disability financial benefit to eligible. Canadians and like all the details are still unknown of this to be honest but there was this sense of momentum of there's uh we saw disability organizations like coming together to fight for certain things or in some cases to fight against them what would your advice be for people like for a country that's just really getting into this national disability movement uh because we're really influenced by America obviously but we're different and we haven't had 30 years in federal accessibility legislation. Like, what would you say for Canadians about tempering our expectations or of like how to move forward when we realize that a law alone isn't going to do everything we want it to? Well, it is true that here, in the lead up to the ADA, uh, you know, all kinds of disabled folks work together, which is, which is great. But even then, as I recall, there was debate about Gee, do we include people with AIDS? I mean, that was really discussed at the time. There is always a tendency to want to exclude somebody, somehow. That's a shame. I mean, that people should avoid that, if possible. The more inclusive you are, the better. I think now there may be opponents who say, well, what are we going to do if uh, anybody can claim disability? Well, what's wrong with that? 
It's still debated here. I read this week about a disabled woman in Florida suing a hotel, a B&B, I think, in Maine, for not being accessible, not even having accessibility information on their website. And it's going, I think, up to the highest court, the Supreme Court, I believe, because they say she never even came here. How could she sue us if she never visited? We didn't cause any problems. Well, one problem with the ADA is the only way it can be enforced is through lawsuits. It puts the burden on the disabled people. That's a problem. Because then, you know, we get a, a bad reputation. As you know, complainers, people say, oh, there are people that are pursuing frivolous lawsuits without any, well, but that's the only way to enforce it. You don't want to make that mistake in Canada, I hope. You know, there should be a, a way to get a, a ticket or something for, for not being accessible. I realize it's not going to solve all the problems, but it's an important first step to have, you know, civil rights protections. And yeah, I think to be as inclusive as possible. When I when I started this book, I knew there'd been a, a rise in autistic self-advocacy, a neurodiversity movement, but I knew nothing about it. And I thought, would they be insulted if I called them disabled? Are they something separate? Well, I was wrong. I mean, the leaders of the movement back in the early, I guess the 1990s, early 2000s, it really were emulating the ADA efforts. Yes, include, you know, we, we are part of it. So I, I think it's important to be as inclusive as possible. And ultimately, you, you something we're dealing with now, I think, you have to think about who is going to be the, the face of the movement, because you invariably leave somebody out. That's why the disability justice folks got organized, because the disability rights movement had left out people of color. So, I shouldn't say left out, had erased contributions of, of people of color. So, I, I would advise trying to be as inclusive as possible on uh, a lot of scales, on types of disability and socioeconomic groups and, and the whole the whole shebang. We're a big tent, you know, we're a big, big diverse group, and uh, the more the merrier. You, you talk a lot in the book about what you've learned from this current generation of disability advocates and just disabled people who are out like doing their lives. What do you think that this current generation can learn from your generation? In researching my book, I learned a lot from the younger folks but that's not what you asked me. Uh, well, we could start with what they taught you and then what you'd like to teach them. The, the, the new generation taught me a lot about inclusiveness, as I've already discussed, which had not been, I had not been as aware of. I think a lot of my generation was not aware of. But I, I don't know. I mean, certainly I don't give up. You know, I mean, the folks, really folks, before me, kept fighting for, for rights. And uh, like any movement, there are small victories. You, know, you move forward and move backward and try again and move forward some more. Mm. I don't know, you don't, don't stop hammering away and uh, 
I'm trying to think of something, something good to say. <laughs> that that is actually really, um, yeah, because because that whole message of like you have to keep going and you have to keep persevering. I think I, I say this someday in my mid thirties. I think sometimes that was lost on our generation because we've gotten some things much like even the fact of like communication technology. Right? I expect that I can just talk to somebody in Los Angeles right away uh, with no no barriers. I have friends who live on the other side of the country as me and I just text them and it's instantaneous as opposed to sending a letter in the mail and waiting, right? Having to learn to wait and be patient. It's it's a it's a virtue that, <laughs> that we need to learn. Well, but you know, people get impatient because, you know, it's been a long time. Disabled people have always existed and have not really had rights for very long. Was there anything that really surprised you? as you were researching this book? Yeah. Where do I start? I think I even had the thought early on that the younger generation of disabled folks had grown complacent. That my generation, and the one before my generation, had gotten these rights and nobody cared anymore. Boy, was that wrong. I mean, people are active in many different ways. And you don't have to be, you know, out there holding signs and shouting slogans. But you can be active from your bed, you know, thanks to technology. People are active in many ways. And there are a lot of little things, little things that I think each of us do every day that are really small acts of protest. You know, it's, it's, uh, it can be revolutionary for a disabled person to say, you know, hey, I count. I, I deserve to ride on the bus or whatever the little thing is. That in itself can be a political statement. That's true. Ben, before we get to the final questions, is there anything else that you would want people to know about the book or um, about other other things in your life? <laughs> By the book. Buy lots of copies of the book. Give it to all your friends. No, I, you know, I tried to publish a book for many years. It's not until, I guess, 10 years ago that my first book was published. Did I become a better writer? Maybe. But again, to me, it's another example. There is now a recognized market and need for for books, for, for everything related to disability that people did not acknowledge before. I think the more we pay tribute to that, the more we make and, and see and recommend movies and TV shows about disability. Or yeah, books or articles or songs or, or anything. You know, we, we, we tell the world that we're out there and we demand to be visible, to be present in the cultural discourse. So even even that is a kind of activism that uh, it does register, I think. People take note of the fact that these uh, products exist and, uh, and that there are customers out there for it. And your your three books collectively, they really do share like the full story of your life from childhood to adulthood to now being in your 60s. So what do you hope, like what do you hope your legacy is? 
I know this year we've lost a lot of champions of, of the disability rights movement historically. So what, like, what do you hope your legacy will be? Well, you know, let's hope it's a, a better world for the next generation. People become disabled every day and disabled kids are born every day. And uh, I hope it will become less difficult for people to, to uh, accept that and to really to value the disability experience. But I think that only really comes from knowledge, from connecting A to other disabled folks, but, but B to this, this history, this culture, uh, you know, what disabled people have always done, what we've always contributed to, to the world. Mm, that's true. So, Ben, the final questions that we always ask people who come on the show, it's called Connecting Disability. So first, I was just wondering, what are the places in your life or ways right now that it can still be difficult for you to connect with others because of disability and the social experiences around it? Uh, well, it, uh, I can still have a hard time getting out the door, you know, particularly in the COVID era. You know, people don't wear masks. It doesn't feel very safe out there, and there's still there's still physical boundaries, uh, you know, steps and bumps and things that are not good for wheelchairs, and there are still people who won't connect with me. You know, you meet them and they look right through you, ignore what you're saying. It sounds like a, a small thing, but it means a lot to me just if I talk to somebody and I listen to what I'm saying, if, if I'm, I don't know, respected, I guess, and not talk down to or talk through, because it still happens. You know, I go out with my wife and I'll ask her what I want. It happens uh, really more than it should. And uh, what do you do? You know, sometimes you yell and scream, and sometimes you just laugh it off, depending on the mood or whatever. But, uh, yeah, we still need more education to make attitudes more accessible, more than accessible. You know, welcoming, validating, I guess, uh, of uh, our lives and our experiences. And given all that, which I think are experiences a lot of people can relate to, what what has good connection looked like for you in your life recently? Well, you know, technology helps a lot. A lot of disabled folks on social media. And, uh, I, I, you know, I keep writing stuff. I keep pitching ideas for essays and books and uh, articles. Uh, I think they help me feel connected. I, I've learned to be careful not to, you know, I, I cannot speak for all disabled people. And I think sometimes a non-disabled world wants me to, or anybody looks, looks at us and says, gee, what do disabled people want? Well, you know, ask them. You know, but we're not, we're not a monolith. And, and I've gotten some flack for uh, seeming to represent myself as, as if I'm speaking for others, which I don't mean to do. But to the extent that I have access to media or, or an audience or an ability, I would only hope to, you know, to amplify the, the, the views of, of the community, but not to speak for others. 
That can be tricky sometimes, I find. But you know, it's always good to connect. It's good to, it's good to be on your podcast and to talk to you and to connect with your audience. Yeah, but I can, uh, if you're wondering what your legacy is going to be. So I'm unmarried um, and that's likely not going to change in the near future. But I regularly keep a list of books about disability and marriage so that if I'm ever engaged, I can like give them to my husband to be and be like, this is what you need to read. And your book is definitely on that list. So uh, I, I actually like highly recommend it every time that conversation comes up. I, I deeply, deeply enjoyed it. Thanks so much for for coming on the show. And I actually, I just want to know, uh, as a book reader, are you working on anything now or? Yeah, I have a proposal out there that my agent is shopping. I hope for good news soon. Well, uh, I hope for good news as well. And then maybe you can come back and tell us all about it. Cool. I would like that. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Nizreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to our guest, Ben Mallon. Ben and I spent some time on this episode talking about the contributions that different generations have given to the disability rights movement. And here in Canada, we've recently lost some giants of that movement. So I just want to take this time to acknowledge the late David Onley, former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, and Stephen Trumper, who was a longtime journalist, editor, and teacher in Toronto. I had the opportunity to meet both of these men on different occasions, uh, personally and for work things, and I hope I and better for their kindness, for their generosity, and for their tireless activism and advocacy for other people. Uh, They will be greatly missed, but never forgotten. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll connect next time.